This is Shivaraman again from Johns Hopkins University. So why don't we continue our survey of post-Whipple or post-pancreatic duodenectomy imaging by talking about a few other complications that I think are critical for you as a radiologist to be able to recognize on CT. Now, so far we've talked about pancreatic fistula and post-operative hemorrhage, which I think are probably the most important complications after the Whipple. But I think an important complication that's all too often overlooked or underdiagnosed is post-operative pancreatitis. Now, as you can imagine, this is a really, really difficult diagnosis to make. I've, you know, I look at Whipple procedure cases almost every day, and you know, I gotta admit, this isn't a diagnosis that I make all that often. It's difficult. There's a lot of post-operative induration, inflammatory change, fluid after the Whipple procedure, and how do you really differentiate that from post-operative pancreatitis? Now, if you look at studies, this is actually a relatively common diagnosis at least 27% of cases. And I don't know about you, but I certainly don't diagnose this on CT 27% of the time. And that's probably because I'm being misled by all the post-operative induration and fluid that you normally see after the Whipple procedure. Unfortunately, there's really no laboratory test you can lean on either. Your amylase and lipase levels are completely unreliable in the setting of a recent Whipple procedure. They're normally gonna be elevated. So that's really not gonna tell you anything at all. So how do you make that distinction? normal post-operative change from post-operative pancreatitis. Well, I think there are a couple of clues that may help you a little bit. First of all, if you see a disproportionate amount of inflammation immediately around the pancreatic remnant, that typically isn't just post-operative change. Post-operative change is usually gonna be spread around the retroperitoneum. Not only will it be around the pancreatic remnant, but it'll also involve those right upper quadrant jejunal loops, the uh, gastrojejunostomy, and the other anastomoses. If you just see it around the pancreas, that's typically gonna be post-operative pancreatitis. Secondly, if you see a disproportionate amount of fluid in the pararenal spaces, particularly the left anterior pararenal space, that's almost always gonna be post-operative pancreatitis. Now you're gonna get a little bit of fluid after the Whipple procedure, but there shouldn't be that much. If you get a lot of fluid in that pararenal space, you've got to think about the possibility of post-operative pancreatitis. Now, let's talk next about portomesenteric venous thrombosis. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our surgeons are doing extraordinarily complex venous reconstructions. Now, nowadays, having significant narrowing or even occlusion of the portal and SMV confluence is not a contraindication to the Whipple procedure. Our surgeons are capable of big-time venous reconstructions, putting in inner position grafts, doing all kinds of things that would not have been imaginable even 10 years ago. But needless to say, as the complexity of these venous reconstructions increases, certainly there's an increased risk of venous thrombosis. Now, it's thought traditionally, if you look at the older literature, that about 17% of patients develop venous thrombosis after the Whipple procedure. And the study where that number comes from is primarily based on patients, you know, prior to this advent of significant venous reconstruction. I'd suggest nowadays that the odds of a significant venous thrombosis, even in the best of hands, are likely to be significantly higher than they were just a decade ago. Now, for the most part, treatment of a portomesenteric venous thrombosis is typically just gonna be with systemic anticoagulation. But that being said, in rare cases, if you're immediately post-op, some of these patients may be treated with a surgical thrombectomy. Now, I like to specifically talk to my residents and fellows about looking at the SMV on every case, especially in patients who are at high risk for SMV thrombosis. Now, I really, really think it's important to not solely rely on the axial images. I always tell them, I make it a point to look at the portal vein on every case in the coronal plane and the SMV. 
I follow that SMV down on the coronal plane because all too often I've seen cases where short segment thrombus within the SMV has been missed on the axial images. I've seen that several times. And usually because it's because it's just there on a couple of slices on the axial images, you're scrolling really quickly, you're looking for something big, and you just happen to scroll past it. But that's not going to happen if you rely on the coronal images. You'll never miss a big SMV thrombus if you reliably look at the SMV on every case in the coronal images. So here's an example. Portal vein thrombus, not a diagnosis that you should be missing. Really, you have to make it a point in every Whipple case to carefully trace out both the portal veins and the SMV. And I make it a point not only to look at the main right and left portal veins, but I try to look at the anterior and posterior divisions of the right portal vein and the medial and lateral divisions of the left portal vein. I've seen cases where these patients have just developed isolated segmental portal vein clot. Now, another important vascular complication of the Whipple procedure is hepatic infarction and ischemia. Now, if you look at all patients, it's relatively rare to develop infarction or ischemia of the liver. And that's because of the liver's dual blood supply. So as all of you know, the liver receives blood from both the hepatic artery and the portal vein. And in most cases, there has to be some kind of an abnormality of both for you to develop a frank liver infarct. Now, I'd say in the majority of patients where I've seen frank hepatic infarcts, there's been some kind of an underlying abnormality in the mesenteric arterial vasculature that puts the patient at risk. So their underlying arterial reserve is somehow compromised. Maybe they have really bad atherosclerotic disease, especially at the origin of the celiac artery. Maybe they have median arcuate ligament syndrome, a hypertrophied median argument compressing arcuate ligament compressing the uh, proximal celiac, or maybe they have something like mesenteric vasculitis or fibromuscular dysplasia. Now, obviously, I'm going to focus here, pri I'm focused primarily on imaging patients after the Whipple procedure, but I think these are all important points to make to the surgeon on your preoperative scan. I really try to emphasize this. On the preoperative scan, I make it a point to not only tell them about vascular variants, things like a replaced right hepatic artery or an accessory left hepatic artery, but I also try to tell them, is there a bunch of atherosclerotic calcification? Is there a hypertrophied median arcuate ligament? Is there beating of the renal arteries to suggest that the patient has FMD? You can really, really protect your surgeon by giving them just that little bit more information than you normally give them. Now, I'd say in addition to that underlying abnormality in the hepatic of vasculature, most of the time hepatic infarcts result from some kind of a f real surgical complication. Now, our surgeons are increasingly dealing with larger and larger tumors, especially those that involve the vessels because of that new category of borderline resectable disease. And as, as they have to dissect these large tumors away from the hepatic artery or the celiac artery, you know, you're at risk for developing an injury to one of those vessels. In addition, you have to be really careful in terms of arterial anatomy and in terms of variant anatomy. We've had cases where there's been inadvertent sacrifice of a replaced right hepatic artery because it wasn't recognized at surgery or it wasn't properly pointed out to the surgeon on the preoperative CT scan. So here's an example of that. This is a patient who had inadvertent sacrifice of a replaced right hepatic artery during surgery. Wasn't recognized. And notice how there's a large infarct in the right inferior hepatic lobe with well-defined peripheral enhancement. So this isn't just an infarct now. It evolved into a biloma and subsequently turned into an abscess. Now, I think it's important to remember that the location of an infarct will vary depending on the underlying etiology. With most infarcts, they tend to happen in the left hepatic lobe, and that's because there is some collateral supply going to the right hepatic lobe via phrenic and diaphragmatic collaterals. But obviously, if you frankly sacrifice the replaced right hepatic artery, or if there's a dedicated right hepatic artery injury, you're going to tend to end up with a right hepatic lobe abscess or infarct. Now, even though all of the complications we've talked about are important and somewhat common, 
The most common complication after the Whipple procedure by far is delayed gastric emptying. And for some reason, we tend not to comment on it on CT. We just kind of tend to ignore it. But it's incredibly common. Probably up to 50% of patients who undergo the Whipple procedure are going to end up with delayed gastric emptying. Now, these are patients who just don't do very well after surgery. They initially have an NG tube coming out of the OR. They try removing the NG tube, but the patient doesn't tolerate it. They throw up. They can't keep anything down. And ultimately, usually, they have to have an NG tube placed back. Now, in some cases, this delayed gastric emptying resolves on its own, but we've had patients who have never done very well and have ultimately required long-term TPN. Now, no one really understands the exact cause of delayed gastric emptying after the Whipple. It probably has to do with some kind of a localized disturbance of the autonomic innervation of the stomach because of the surgeon being in the operative bed. And it probably is potentiated by other post-surgical complications, things like an abscess, a fistula, or even severe intraoperative blood loss. But that being said, this is all kind of hand-waving. No one really knows exactly what causes delayed gastric emptying. Now, delayed gastric emptying isn't actually a very difficult diagnosis to make on a CT scan. If you see a huge stomach out of disproportion to all the rest of the bowel, you can probably surmise that the patient has delayed gastric emptying. So here's an example, a huge stomach, and this was a patient who actually had to have an NG tube replaced because they couldn't keep anything down immediately after surgery. Now, most of the time when you have delayed gastric emptying after a Whipple, it's a functional obstruction. It's like a delayed gastric emptying. But in rare cases, it can be as a result of edema at the gastrojejunostomy. So here's an example. You can see a dilated stomach, it's filled with positive oral contrast, and there's marked edema and fluid directly at the GJ anastomosis. This is probably the better thing to have. That edema and fluid is typically in a resolve over time, and hopefully that delayed gastric emptying is going to get better on its own. So let's end by talking about the most important delayed complication after a Whipple procedure, and that's anastomotic stricture. Now, the two most common sites where you can develop an anastomotic stricture are at the hepatical jejunostomy and at the pancreatical jejunostomy. Now, in general, hepatical jejunostomy strictures are much more common, but that being said, they typically take a much longer time to develop. The median time to diagnosis is about 18 months. Now, pancreatic or jejunal anastomotic strictures tend to happen less often. The incidence is about 4.5% at 5 years. But that being said, when they happen, they tend to happen much more quickly. They tend to happen at about 3 months. So, for us as radiologists, the important thing is, not is to really pay attention to both the pancreatic and the biliary duct and their size in particular, on every follow-up study. I think all too often, we as radiologists tend to just get bogged down in terms of the tumor. Is there tumor recurrence? Is there lymphadenopathy? Is there a liver metastasis? But every time you look at a Whipple case, you have to be measuring the pancreatic and the biliary duct sizes. If there's any sudden change in size between one study to another, you have to worry about two things. You have to worry about either an anastomotic stricture, which is probably the most common thing, or alternatively, new obstructing tumor directly at the anastomotic site. Now, if you have a benign stricture, for the most part, the surgeons tend not to go back in for reoperation. Most of these strictures are going to be treated non-operatively, often with balloon dilatation. Now, as I mentioned before, anytime you have a new case of biliary or pancreatic ductal dilatation, you have to look very carefully at the ducts for any evidence of a subtle obstructing tumor. Now here's an example where the pancreatic duct has increased in size over the course of six months. There's now mild to moderate pancreatic ductal dilatation, which wasn't there in the prior examination. Now, it'd be very easy to look at this and just assume that you're dealing with some kind of a 
pancreatic jejunal and anastomotic stricture. But if you look really carefully, there's this subtle area of nodularity right at the anastomosis that looks very mass-like. Now, could that be that normal invagination I talked about earlier, that invagination of jejunum directly into the anastomosis? Well, it could be, but I've got to say, that made us very, very nervous. It looked awfully mass-like, and we raised the possibility that that could be an obstructing tumor of the anastomosis. And we were proven right. The patient was taken to endoscopic ultrasound, a tiny nodule was identified, it was biopsied, and it turned out to be locally recurrent tumor. So in summary, I think it's important when you're dealing with Whipple cases to have an algorithmic approach. I try to teach this to our residents and fellows. Don't just haphazardly look at a bunch of stuff in no particular order and just hope you'll get to the right answer. You've got to look at structures in a certain order every way, every time, and make sure you're looking at every structure and that you're counting for every possible complication. On every case, start by looking at the three anastomoses. Look at the pancreatic jejunostomy, usually in the axial plane. Look at the gastrojejunostomy, and look at the hepatic jejunostomy. Make sure that there's no new pancreatic or biliary ductal dilatation. Make sure the surgical bed is devoid of any new tumor or nodularity. And then think about each of the complications we talked about and make sure there's no evidence of them. Secondly, I think it's critical that you understand the normal postoperative appearance after a Whipple. Understand what normal is, both in the acute perioperative period and in the more chronic surveillance setting. And don't, don't mistake something normal for being pathology. Finally, I think it's critical that you use proper CT technique. I know the majority of you out there are probably just doing venous phase studies, but I really encourage you, dual phase technique can be extraordinarily helpful, particularly in that acute perioperative setting. I promise you there will be cases where it can be vital in terms of identifying a vascular complication you may have missed otherwise. Thank you, and I hope to see you again soon. Thank you.